Hello and welcome to the Emmanuel Church London catch-up service. Thank you so much for joining us. We have a passion to present Jesus to London and would love for you to be part of the adventure. So why not say hello to us by visiting our website manualchurchlondon.org so we can get back to you and say a bit more of a personal hello. I mean, I wish, honestly, if I had more time, I would, um, I would just love to tell you a bit about what is happening in some of those different places, because Ben said, I've, I've been, to Bel- been to Belfast a couple of times in the last six months. Livy went to Belfast as well in September uh, to preach there and teach on prophecy, which I know they had, had a great time, really enjoyed. It's just a great church. It's like 30 people starting from nothing to build a church, you know, and people are getting saved. They've, get, they've got baptisms in a few weeks. Um, ups and downs, challenges all the time, but God's with them. It's really beautiful. Um, and Amsterdam as well. I've been twice in the last six months. I'm going again in a couple of weeks. Um, and there's a church there of two or 300 people that started seven or eight years ago. It didn't exist. Now there's two, two or 300 people in Amsterdam worshiping together, following Jesus and just praying about what they can then do to multiply across the city and into other parts of the Netherlands. And like Ben said, been to Bath as well, and which is a brand new church. It's just exciting just being able to travel and see what God's doing in loads of different places, as well as just being a part of what God's doing here as well. Um, but I haven't got loads of time to talk about all of that, so I won't do it too much. You have to come on Thursday night if you want to come and pray. It's just for one hour online, and we'll be hearing about some of those church plants, praying for them, and as Ben said, other stuff that God's doing as well, and praying for London Bridge, I believe. So um, come along. Um, I would love to just speak to you for half an hour or so. Um, As Ben said, we're doing this miracles series. Um, We're particularly looking at not just the fact that Jesus did some miracles, but the reality that quite a few of them, they, they point to something beyond the miracle itself. So there's this supernatural event that happens and it was real. It actually happened. Jesus was there. He did heal the deaf and he did raise the dead and he did, as we're going to see today, heal the blind. But those things point to something actually even more profound than this dramatic, miraculous event that has occurred in the moment. Um, And today I want to read from Mark chapter 8. It's just a few verses. Uh, It might be a story you've heard before, I don't know. Um, It says that some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out the village. And when he had spat on his eyes as you do, you know, when he has spat on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? Just your saliva, said the man. No, no, no. (laughs) And uh, Sorry, I shouldn't really do that with the Bible. (laughs) And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. And then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And uh, it's actually not the only healing of a blind man or blind people that Jesus does in the Gospels. There's another famous one in John 9, where there's a, a man brought to Jesus who was born blind. Uh, and Jesus does a similar thing, actually. He spits as he spits on the ground, makes some mud, rubs it in the man's eyes, and then sends him to go and wash in this particular pool. And when he washes it off, this man who was, who was born blind, and so for decades couldn't see, suddenly can see. Uh, another story in Matthew 9, where two men are calling out to Jesus. And they say, 
specific words to say, have mercy on us, son of David. And Jesus stops and turns around and lays hands on them and they are healed as well. It's one of the things that Jesus particularly seemed to do was heal blind people, uh, which is significant because in the, in the Old Testament, in the bit of the Bible that comes before Jesus was even on the scene, there, there was a lot, a lot of talk about the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah who was going to come. And one of the things that was said about the Messiah was that he would open blind eyes. That's what he's going to do. When the Messiah comes, he's going to, in Isaiah 61, you might be more familiar, it says he's going to proclaim recovery of sight for the blind. In other places as well, it's described this Messiah who's going to come, this, this son of David, this king who's going to come from God, is going to, blind people are going to start seeing when he appears. So the fact that Jesus did these miracles that the disciples witnessed and wrote down for us to read about is, is remarkable but also points to who Jesus is. I don't know if any of you have ever seen a blind person healed. I won't do a hands up. I'm guessing it's not loads. <laughs> uh, the, the closest I think I've ever come uh, was a number of years ago now, a new day, which many of you know about this youth conference we go to. We have an evening every week where we pray for the sick. Uh, and there's always remarkable healings that occur. And one year, there was this uh, girl who responded. She was about 14, 15, uh, responded after the healing to give a testimony about what happened. And she was very severely dyslexic. And she had special glasses she had to wear that had colored shades that were to try to help her to read. Uh, but her experience of reading was that as she looked at a page, the, the letters would generally move around and mix up. And so it was very hard for her to read. She had a, a reading age that was significantly lower than her age because of her difficulties with reading. And she described how when she was prayed for to be made well, uh, she took her glasses off and looked at the page and for the first time, the words made sense. And then she got up on the stage and the person leading the evening said, let's just test this out, shall we? So he opened the Bible and gave it to her and she just started reading perfectly, cleanly through this passage of the Bible. And, and it was one of those kind of like jaw-dropping moments as you looked on, you realize this is quite spectacular because not only has whatever was going on with her quite severe dyslexia been healed, but her reading age has just been supernaturally accelerated from something, I think, I think she said it was about eight or nine, to, you know, to anyone that just hear, hear, clearly hearing someone reading through what is sometimes quite complex reading the Bible out loud. You know, sometimes I get nervous, you know, what does that say? Uh, and it was just breathtaking. It was just remarkable just seeing just in my head, just trying to think, what must just have happened in her brain for this to work? What has God just done? It's like, I get confused trying to rewire a plug, you know, and sometimes, somehow God has taken millions of synapses and just rewired neurons in her brain to make the whole thing work. And at the same time, she's got one like a matrix download of how to suddenly read better. I mean, like, this is just amazing. And then when you think about a man born blind, it... I mean, unless you're a brain surgeon, it's hard to even understand how complex that would be to heal someone so that they could actually see when they've never seen their whole life. That is breathtaking miracles. And yet, when Jesus does these miracles, what the Bible tends to do is not spend ages thinking about how amazing the physical healing is. It tends to point us towards something else that is going on. 
that there's some kind of revelation uh, of, of the gospel, of who Jesus is, that this is pointing us to. So in, in Mark 8, which is the passage I just read, it's quite interesting when you read it because the passage before, there's this great little interaction where Jesus says to his disciples, he says, Be, beware, watch out for the leaven, like the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. And the disciples are like, talk to themselves and say, do you think he means we forgot to bring the bread with us? You know, they get confused and Jesus says to them, do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Jesus has this experience with the disciples that they kind of know who he is. They kind of follow him. They kind of, they're on his team. But at the same time, they're often very confused about what is going on. The very next passage, Jesus says to them, who do you say I am? And Peter says, it's that moment where he says, well, other people say this and this. And Jesus says, well, who do you say? You're the Christ. There's this moment of revelation that comes to Peter. So right in the middle of those two passages, the disciples are like really confused. Like they're following Jesus, but they don't really understand who he is or what's going on. And then this two-stage healing happens. And then next verse, it's like Jesus is saying, who do you think I am? Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. How does Peter know that? Well, partly because he's just watched him heal the blind. That's what the Messiah was going to come and do. But partly it's because God has revealed something in his heart. So when we hear these stories about the healing of the blind, partly what's going on is God and the, the scriptures are trying to teach us about what happens when we become a Christian. That probably the most famous song lyric of all time is, uh, you're wondering where this is going. <laughs> Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. That's John Newton describing becoming a Christian. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind. I could not spiritually see. What does he mean by that? I could not spiritually understand who Jesus was, what he did, what God was like, how he loved me. Those things were, were impossible for me to perceive, but somehow God in his mercy opened my eyes so that I can now see them and understand them. And that is, I guess, what I want us to just think about today and dwell on a little bit. And I, particularly, I want to look at a, a different verse in the Bible as well that describes this for us. It, it describes what it is that happens when we become a Christian. I know some of you here would think of yourselves as Christians, quite a lot of you, obviously we're in church. Uh, and, and so this would be helpful just for us to think, what happened to me? How did, it, how did it happen? How did I become a Christian? What does the Bible say about it? But at the same time, if you're here, you're, you're not a Christian, or, or maybe particularly you feel like, yeah, I, I know who I am. I'm the guy who I see people, but they're like trees walking. It's like, I know I can see something of faith. I know that there's a God, but I don't really know that I've got the same kind of clarity, the same kind of energy in it, the same kind of joy that some of these other people seem to have. It's like, I see phasey, phasey, hazy, fuzzy, uh, something like that stuff, you know, but other people seem to see clearly. I see Jesus and I'm like, yeah, he seems good. Other people seem to be amazed. It's like they see something that I don't see. Maybe that's you. And I hope that these verses will be helpful to you. It's from 2 Corinthians 4. It should come up on the screen. And it says this. This is 
the Apostle Paul describing to us what happens when we become Christians, I think is going to be helpful for all of us. Wherever you're at on your spiritual journey, however clearly you think you see Jesus, I think these verses will help us. If we start reading verse 3, it says, Even if our gospel, our good news, even if the message we preach, he says, even if it's veiled, it's veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. These are pretty dense verses, so we're going to try and go slowly through them. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What's going on there? Gospel means good news, yeah? The, the good news of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. That's what the Christian message is. What he's saying is that there's a, he's actually describing Satan, the devil, but he describes him using this phrase, the God of this world. And the reason he does that is because what he's trying to draw attention to is that there is a reality of, of, of worldly lies that actually cloud the minds of unbelievers so that it is impossible for them to see clearly the good news about the glory of Christ who comes to us to perfectly represent who God is and what he's like. He's saying there's this, in the world, if you, if you live in the world, all of us who are human, we, we live in this world, Satan, the God of this world, blinds us. How does he blind us? Not physically, but spiritually. How? With this web of lies, with a web of deceit that means we, we see, but we don't see what is spiritually true. We don't see truth. We get deceived and we get uh, tricked into believing other kinds of things. It's like when Jesus says to his disciples in that moment, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. And what, what does he mean by that? He means he's speaking to his disciples who are in this kind of semi-confused state. And he's saying, watch out. Watch out because there's this kind of, you know, yeast is you know, part of the process of baking bread and it kind of gets itself through the whole dough. That's the kind of image Jesus is using. He's saying, watch out for the lies, the deceitfulness. Watch out for the mistakes of the Pharisees and the Herodians because it will kind of affect the way that your whole life is. And it's the same kind of thing. The God of this world blinds people's eyes. That The Pharisees were supposed to be the religious leaders. Yeah, They were supposed to be the people that taught everyone about God. They were the people that opened up the Bible and told you what it meant and showed you how to read it and what you had to do as a result. But what had happened is somehow the God of this world had somehow managed to confuse even the religious leaders so that they were teaching people things that were wrong, so that the spiritual authorities had got confused, so that when they saw Jesus, they thought of him as the enemy instead of as the God that they should worship and serve. So he's, the, the, he's saying, Jesus is saying, watch out for the Pharisees. Even among religious leaders, there can be kind of lies that come in and deceive people and stop you from seeing who Jesus is really clearly. And he says, watch out for the Herodians. Well, who are they? They're the Herod, you know, the, the kind of political authorities, the other major influence of the day. Watch out for them as well, because there's lies there. There's deceptions that come in and kind of cloud your mind. Take things that are kind of true, but then twist them somehow to make them into something that's not true. 
I haven't read it, but there's a, I think it's a really great book out that I recommend to all of you to read uh, at the moment called The Air We Breathe. Uh, some of you might have seen it advertised, written by a guy called Glenn Scrivener. And what it does is it, take, it describes some of the highest values we have in today's culture. Seven of them, equality, compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom, and progress. Some of the things that in our culture, in the, the world we live in today, we would, people generally would say, yeah, that we believe in those things. Compassion, yes. Equality, yes. Consent, enlightenment, science, progress, freedom. They're some of our highest values. And what he does in the book is show us all those things developed in culture because of Christianity. They, they've come out of a Christian framework of thinking, equality, compassion, freedom. They're, they are essentially Christian ideas that have now been woven together in our culture in such a way as to deny Christ. That's worth thinking about, isn't it? They're, they're all basically Christian ideas, but the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that you can't when you even if you believe in the right kinds of things it's like making a cake you've got all the right ingredients but you put them in the wrong order or you put a little bit too much in or you you know if you're really bad like me you whisk the flour and you do something wrong with the egg and you what you get out at the end is not a cake you've got something different yeah and the god of this world does that he does it to pharisees the religious leaders the people that from a very young age had done nothing but read the Bible and do their best to honor God, the God of this world confuses them with a web of lies so that they can't see Jesus when he's standing in front of them, healing people who are blind. In John 9, which is, one of that, which is the story of the man born, born blind, Jesus heals this man and then the Pharisees basically are so annoyed because he did it on the Sabbath that they end up kicking the man who's been healed. They kick him out of the synagogue. They excommunicate him because he won't renounce Jesus. That's, that's how, I mean, when you stop and think about it, how remarkable is that? This is, like I said, the people that have read the Bible the most and know that they could tell you which verse and number it is that says the Messiah is going to come and when he comes, he's going to heal the blind. And then someone, some, a man comes and he heals the blind and they... They hate him. They're completely against him because the God of this world, somehow the yeast of the Pharisees got in and blinded their minds so they couldn't see, they couldn't see the glory of Christ even when he was in front of them healing blind people. It's like something was there stopping them from seeing who he truly was and what it is that he was doing. So verse 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. If you're not a Christian, I appreciate that might sound a little bit offensive. It might sound like there's loads of Christians here saying, ha, the God of this world has blinded your eyes, unlike us, however, who see perfectly clearly. I just want to assure you that is actually not how most Christians think. It certainly isn't how Christians should think. As Christians, what we tend to think is, yeah, that was me. The God of this world completely blinded my eyes. I grew up in church. I listened to sermons my whole life. I sat there scribbling doodles on a notice sheet and trying to give my mates dead legs whilst the sermon was going on. Imagine, imagine that kind of thing. That's what I did. I was, I was hearing the best news that could ever be preached by anyone. What am I going to do? 
doodle and punch your mate in the leg to try and give him a dead leg. Like, why? Because it wasn't, I'd had no spiritual appetite for it. I couldn't see the glory and the truth of what was being described until God breathed and woke me up. Verse five carries on. It says this, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. This is quite important as well. This is Paul writing. He's saying the God of the world, he, he blinds unbelievers so they can't see. So what do we do about it? Well, we, this is what we don't do. We don't talk about ourselves. We don't make this whole thing about us as Christian leaders and preachers. And we don't make it about ourselves as Christian disciples either. What do we make it about? We proclaim who? Jesus as Lord. What do we do when there are people who can't see the glory of Christ, the good news of the glory of Christ, who represents the image of God? What do you do? You preach Jesus is Lord. You tell people what Jesus is like. You, you talk about, not about how to have a better life, not about how to get all your problems solved, not about all this. You proclaim Jesus is Lord. You tell people about the glory of Jesus and who he is and what he's done and what he's like and how amazing it is. And uh, that's why when we sing songs, we want to sing songs about Jesus. And when we preach sermons, we want to preach sermons about Jesus. And as we live our lives as disciples, we want to live for the glory of Jesus and in relationship with Jesus, in the power of Jesus. You might think, yeah, that's pretty obvious, except uh, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Herodians. <laughs> Beware the temptation to sing songs that are kind of about Jesus, but also about how it makes me feel to sing this nice song about Jesus. <laughs> Beware of sermons that are kind of about Jesus, but actually are mostly about you and how great you are and how great you could be if you just follow this simple three-step program. It's quite easy, isn't it, to get kind of very subtly turned so that you're not preaching Jesus is Lord. You are starting to preach about yourself or about something other than Jesus as the king and the one that's full of glory. Watch out for it in our own lives. It's so easy. I mean, I don't, I'm, I know I'm a preacher, but I'm not just preaching at you, I'm confessing. It is so easy for all of us to sing on a Sunday, it's all about you, and then to live a whole week basically making our lives mostly about us. Paul, the guy who wrote this, he says in Philippians, I consider everything that I have, everything worth nothing compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So his life is about Jesus. Another point, he says to live is Christ, to die is gain. Why is that? Because I get to see Jesus. I get the veil that's still there, whatever's remaining of it, finally goes. It finally goes. One day, he says, to dying is gain. I don't mind if I die. Because then I'm going to get all the distractions and the restrictions and the limitations that are on me at the moment that mean I only see Jesus kind of dimly and sometimes through confusion and sometimes like a veil. All of that goes. And I get to see him in, the, in, in his full beauty, in the full glory I don't mind dying. Friends, we need to make our lives, our living and our dying, all about Jesus. Because everything else, anything else tends to distract us from what is central. That doesn't mean nothing else is important. Loads of other stuff is important, but it's only important because 
of Jesus at the center of it. That's what, make, that's what gives everything else its meaning. And if you get distracted, if the yeast of the Pharisees and the Herodians, if the God of this world just starts to distract you from what is central and most true and most real, you will not benefit from it. You'll suffer. So verse five, he says, we proclaim Jesus as Lord. And then verse six, he says this, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What happens when you become a Christian? There's actually loads of ways you can answer that question. Loads of right ways you can answer that question. You can say, when you become a Christian, what, you might say, well, I, I got forgiven. What an amazing truth. All the sin you've ever committed, past, present, and future, when you become a Christian, gets wiped away so it's done with forever, dealt with by Jesus on the cross. That's a great answer to the question. Or you might say, well, when I became a Christian, I got adopted into, into the family of God. What a beautiful answer. It's completely true. You were not in God's family before you became a Christian. And the moment you became a Christian, you were born again. You were brought in forever, securely brought into relationship with God as your heavenly father. What an amazing, good, it's a very good answer. But there's an answer you could give from verse six, which would basically, what happened when you became a Christian? Well, the God who at the very beginning of the world when there was nothing spoke and said, let there be light. As in the God that through his, his voice and his authority spoke creation into being so that there was light in the world spoke and shone into my heart so that for the first time I could, my eyes were opened so that I could see the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what happened. <laughs> That's what happened when we become Christians. God sparked something into life in your soul and opened your eyes so that the web of lies that were deceiving you and distracting you and meaning that you couldn't see the glory of Christ, suddenly that was gone so that you could perceive accurately and clearly something of who Jesus is. Now, you might think, yeah, I didn't know much at all when I became a Christian. <laughs> Absolutely, most of us don't. What happens is like, it's like we just see a little spark of who Jesus is, but that's just enough. It's just enough. You think, okay, there's enough there for me to follow. And the longer you follow, it's like more gets revealed and you see more of who Jesus is. You realize, I knew he was kind and loving. I didn't realize he had such incredible authority and power. But now I do. And some, somehow the fact that there's such power and authority on the one hand makes the gentleness and the kindness even more amazing about him. Or you think, oh, I knew he was humble because I knew he'd come to earth. But I did not know. I didn't realize that all glory in all heaven and earth belonged to him and that one day everyone on the whole earth is going to bow and kneel and say, he's the king of glory. And now I know that about him. It makes me think, goodness, the humility of coming to earth and becoming a man is even more amazing than I thought it was in the first place. Because that's what happens when you see the glory of Christ. Your, you kind of, your, your vision, which starts here, gets stretched out in every direction and, and, and it just keeps going. And every time a new direction kind of gets, gets stretched out, the rest of it becomes more impressive. And, you, and that's what happens. And you might think, yeah, I'm, I'm like that guy and, you know, I'm just wiping Jesus' saliva out of my eyes <laughs> and, and I'm just seeing... Jesus, he looks like a tree walking in the distance. You're like, well, that, that's amazing. That is amazing. You can only see even that little bit of Jesus because he revealed it to you. 
but I just want to let you know that you don't see the full picture yet. If, if you look around and you're seeing other people that seem more excited about Jesus than you are, and you're wondering, are we looking at the same guy? You know, are we, What's going on here? I just want to encourage you. What it is, is that you've seen something, and there's probably enough of it to get you here, at least on a Sunday, that you know there's something in this. I want to encourage you, the full picture, none of us have yet seen. None of us are even close to seeing. One day we're going to see it and it's going to absolutely make us fall to our faces in, in both terror and absolute joy at the same time. We're going to experience the full range of emotions possible to humanity because, and we're going to experience them all in relation to Jesus who's going to be before us. And we just see a little glimpse of that now. One day we're going to see it in full. Amen? Now I'd love to have a chance for us to worship and and take communion together. I just want to say two things in terms of just trying to make it real application. Uh, one for this week and one for right now. Uh, when I, I don't know when I became a Christian. I'm not even sure. There's probably others like that as well. Some point between the age of five and 18, I became a Christian. <laughs> but at the, point, at the age of 18 was the most dramatic turnaround in my heart. It was the, was the moment where it felt like God shone light on me, so I suddenly saw and realized who it was that I was following and I should live completely differently as a result. And, and because I had that experience and I suddenly realized, wow, God is, must be amazing and I'm supposed to know him, but I feel like I don't. I basically found this prayer in the Bible and I prayed it pretty much every day. Ephesians 1, uh, there's this prayer, it says, and, and it basically Paul prays for the church. And he says, I pray that the spirit of wisdom and I pray for you that you would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you would know him better. And that's, it, that's his prayer. I pray for you. And that's my prayer very often for you. But for a year, it was my prayer for myself. I pray, Father, that you would give me the spirit, the Holy Spirit, the one who's full of wisdom and who reveals. I need him so I can know Jesus better. Because I feel like what I see is just this. And, and, and there, was, there, was, there were some high moments and there were some dull moments, but it didn't really matter. And since over that year, I grew in my knowledge and my love of Jesus. I read the scriptures, I read books, and I prayed that prayer. And I want to encourage you, if you feel like I see, but it just feels blurry. That's the word I was looking for earlier. Not phasey or huzzy or anything like that. <laughs> blurry. If you feel like your vision of Jesus is blurry, ask God, the Father, to give you the Holy Spirit so that you might know Jesus better. Just ask him every day. Just make it the thing that your life is about because it is the thing that your life is about. It actually is the reason that God created you. It actually is that you would know him and live for him and become like him. So make it the thing that your life is about because it is. And then you're on the same team as God. You're working in tandem with him. So on the one hand, practical application, just pray it every day alongside Bible reading, book reading, whatever else you do. Second bit for right now, let's pray it now. There's a bit at the end of Luke's gospel where Jesus, uh, just after the death and resurrection of Jesus, two guys are walking along a road and they're just talking to each other. They say, I don't really know what's going on here. Like we're followers of Jesus. We're really confused. And then this third guy appears and talks to them and it's actually Jesus, but they can't see that it's him. He's kind of hiding himself from them and he explains to them 
It says he revealed to them in all the scriptures why the Messiah had to suffer and die. He explains what it is, the meaning of his death and resurrection. And then they sit down for dinner with him and he breaks bread and it says, and their eyes were opened. There's something about taking communion that is supposed to be a moment where our eyes are opened. The eyes of our heart get opened to the reality of the fact that Jesus died and was resurrected on our behalf. So I just love to just to take communion together, to pray for ourselves, to pray for each other, and just to ask God, let's open our eyes, please, Lord. And if you're not a Christian here, you, you may not be ready quite yet to take communion, to take the, the bread and the wine. That might be a step on from where you're at. You can still pray. You can still make a moment where you just pray. Father, if you're there, open, open the eyes of my heart that I can see your glory. Take away the lies so that I can see the truth. You can pray that prayer. So let's stand together and we'll take communion. And if you don't have a little communion pot, they're going to come around. Or you can come out and grab one or you can just wave at someone who's walking around to come and bring them around. But, um, so feel free to take the bread, uh, wafer, the wine. And as we're doing it, I'm not going to pray. I'm just going to invite you to pray. So I, I'm going to pray for myself in my head. I want to invite you, either if you're here with someone, you can pray together for one minute or two, or if you just want to pray yourself. As we take this bread and wine together, just ask the Father, your Father in heaven, ask him to give you the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of your heart to see Jesus more clearly. He really wants to. He's not reluctant. Doesn't mean it happens easily, but he's not reluctant. In fact, it's the main thing he wants to do in your life. The main thing he wants to do in your life. I'm going to stop talking. Let's pray. (laughs) 